0: All right, saints, Hebrews chapter 2. Now, as we went through chapter 1, um, we're, we were looking at just this one thing. If you want to know our outline for Hebrews, it's simply this, Jesus is better. Um, it was interesting. I was talking to a sister um, not that long ago, and she was reminding me, of when we went through Philemon, how we were talking about this, um, immeasurable gain for an insignificant loss and it kind of dawned on me that if we want to change the outline not that jesus is better but we can say jesus is immeasurably better um i don't know what you could put because he's just not better by increments he's just better and, and I think that's really the heart of what we're seeing. You know, we, we took some time and delved into those areas of the prophets. We were there in chapter 1 where God at various times and at various ways spoke in time passed by the prophets. And we, we noted in the different ways that he spoke, the different prophets that he spoke to. And we, we noted that the prophets aren't just nothing. The prophets are amazing the prophets would, you know, part the red sea and they would, you know, call down fire from heaven. These are amazing people, but as amazing as they are, they could not hold a candle to Jesus Christ. And we also went ahead, we started looking at the angels and how the angels as amazing as they are, yet Jesus Christ is just immeasurably better. And so as we come into chapter 2, keep in mind that we're still holding on to that same theme of the angels. Why do I say that? Well, in chapter 1, he deals with how Christ is superior over the angels because of his deity. And in chapter 2, he's going to go on and say Christ is superior over the angels because of his humanity. So you have this mixture of the two. It's not just he's better in his humanity but or in his deity, but he's also better in his humanity. So when he starts out here in chapter 2, where it says, Therefore, we must give a more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. So he starts off with this term, Therefore. Now we've talked about it before. I know it sounds kind of silly, but whenever we see the word therefore, we have to ask why it's therefore. In other words, what came before that? Well, what came before that was the, those seven issues where Christ and his deity is so much better than the angels. We talked about how they're in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, he has been inheritance by inheritance obtained a more excellent name. The Christ is so far superior. He has a more excellent name. Also, you could say he has a more excellent character. That as the angels are created and they're holy, keep in mind that God in his holiness so far exceeds that of all the angels. It talks about there, the, the second thing where he says, you are my son in verse five, I begotten you. And then in verse um, Six, he says, Let all the angels um, of God worship him. That he's going to be worshiped as the firstborn. He's going to be worshiped as the son, or he's going to be worshiped because of his sonship, that thing that we covered on last Sunday. And so we see that in his deity, yes, he has a more excellent name character because just he is God. He's going to be worshiped by the angels. The third thing that we saw is. In verse 7, it says, who makes his angels spirits. So we see that here he made them, he created them in his deity. He's always existed. Angels are simply created. Um, it says the, the fourth thing that he's going to rule over them, we're in verse 8 to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So we see that he's going to rule, and, and because of that, he's so much better than the angels in verse, the fifth thing that he talked about it there in verse 9, Is that he's anointed above them. So, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He has a greater anointing. So, because of this, just keep in mind, every one of this says he's just so much better. He's immeasurably better because of his name. He's immeasurably better because he's worshiped. He's immeasurably better because he's a creator. He's immeasurably better because he sits on the throne and he rules. He's anointed above them all. And then in the the sixth thing he talks about in verse 10 is that Jesus... is the creator not only is he not created and he created the angel he's the creator of all things you O lord in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heaven of the work of your hands and so we see here that sixth thing how jesus is so much better and then of course the seventh thing is that he has a higher place of honor there in verse 13 where he says sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool so you have these seven things and in the seven you know we know that in the scripture seven is the number of completion he deals with those seven things as his deity, how he's so much better than the angels. So when we look at that, it says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed. So if you want to, to make a note, you can say, therefore, because of his name is more excellent, give this more earnest heed. Therefore, because he is you know, um, he's worshipped by the angels, give this more earnest heed. All seven things, because of this, give a more earnest heed. Because of that, every aspect of Jesus Christ and his deity that puts him above the angels, therefore, because of all those seven things, we must give a more earnest heed to the things which you have heard, lest we drift away. You have to truly grasp onto them, anchor onto them, and hold onto them. You need to give a more earnest heed. Now, if you want an understanding of what he's trying to say through this, remember there in Matthew chapter 12 that there um, Jesus was talking, and he made that statement after he talked about Jonah He said in verse 42, where he says, the queen of South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon was here. She would come from the South to the ends of the earth simply to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And of course, when she was there hearing the wisdom of Solomon there in first Kings chapter 10, she says, I didn't even know the, the, hear the half of it. You know, I heard about your wisdom, and now that I'm here, you're blowing my mind. She couldn't comprehend the enormity, how much better his wisdom was. And here, what, um, you know, Jesus was saying one who's far greater and has a greater wisdom than Solomon. So, because of that, now as we come into Hebrews 2, therefore, we must give a more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. In other words, those things where we had come to grasp, remember back in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, where he spoke you know, to the various times and various ways through the prophets. Verse two said, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. We now heard directly from God all these things. So we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we heard, lest we drift away. What does it mean lest we drift away? Well, that term kind of is where if you were there in a boat and you weren't anchored in. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat and you haven't anchored. What happens is this. Wherever the wind blows or wherever the current goes, that's where you go as well. Because you're not anchored in. And because of that, there is this tendency of drifting. You don't know that you're drifting, but you're constantly going to be drifting. And the only way that you know you're drifting, you think you're standing still, until you take a look at the shoreline and then where you used to be, you're not there anymore. And be careful because depends on the weather is how quickly you're going to drift. And and you're going to just be pushed along by either wind or by current. And so he says, just really anchor yourself into the words of Jesus Christ. Those are so important to just say, If Jesus has spoken these things, if Jesus has confirmed these things, that's what I'm going to anchor my faith to. That's what I'm going to anchor my walk to is the things that he's spoken. And so that's all the author of Hebrews wants us to do. Therefore, because of all the things that he was greater than the angels, give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest you drift away. And then in verse two, he says, "For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression of disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. As he comes through, he makes this statement in verse 2, the words spoken through angels prove steadfast. What is he talking about? Well, in the book of Exodus, what we understand is the word of God came to Moses from God. God wrote it with his finger. They're on a tablet. That's what we know from Exodus. However, when we get to the New Testament, there's a couple of passages where both Stephen there in the book of Acts chapter 7 and Paul there in Galatians chapter 3 make this statement that it seems that, you know, the angels were a part of getting the law of God to Moses. And part of that comes from an Old Testament passage. Let me read to you that Old Testament passage found in Deuteronomy 33 verse 2. It says this, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Mount Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with 10,000 of, with 10,000s of saints from his right hand came a fiery law for them. So what we see this is in Deuteronomy 33, there's this understanding that these angels came with the Lord, that they were part of giving the law. Remember when Stephen was being stoned there in Acts chapter 7. The key verse is verse 53 if you want to jot it down. I want to read to you from verse 51 to verse 53. But Stephen was saying, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart of ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, verse 53, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So all of a sudden we see there's this a little bit of a reference there in Deuteronomy 33. There's a greater reference as Here, Stephen speaks of it, and then Paul confirms it there in Galatians 3.19, where he says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So at this point, we see something unique about these angels. There was a word of God that was spoken through angels. Now, what does it mean here that this word of God was spoken through angels? And so it says, if, for if the word of spoken through angels proved steadfast, why was this word that was spoken through angels steadfast? Was it steadfast because the angels spoke it? And because that made it steadfast? Or was it steadfast because the angels spoke the word of God? And because it was the God of, word of God, that made it steadfast. And so there's this debate that goes about it. I believe that is simply it's the angels here um, speaking the word of God, and that's what what makes it so that it's um, steadfast. But it says the word of God spoken through angels. Now, with this word of God spoken through the angels, keep in mind that what we're seeing here is this in this word. It's there's a, a part where because Exodus doesn't talk about it, and people wonder what what's going on here, and why is it that here Stephen talks about it, and why is it that um you know Paul can talk about it? There's a term in scripture, and what it declares is this that it talks about here um a subsequent narrative. It also talks about a progressive revelation. There are things that God chooses to say initially, and then eventually he's going to add, it's going to be building upon it. So sometimes he'll give a truth, and then somewhere else in scripture he's going to build upon that truth, and somewhere else in scripture he's going to build upon that truth. So you don't always have the whole truth that's only in one book. And so keep that in mind that when you read the book of Exodus, you would never know that angels gave a hand in giving out the word. It just wouldn't be there. But yet we see here that what Paul and Stephen says in the author of Hebrews is that the angels had a part in it. So does that mean that Stephen and Paul and the author of Hebrews are wrong and we should throw these books out of the Bible because they're an error? Or is there a further revelation? Is there a greater revelation that here Stephen and Paul and the author of Hebrews is giving to us? So keep in mind that that's one thing that we do need to learn about Scripture, that sometimes that's why we kind of go through things and we call it systematic theology that God uses the whole of Scripture to build upon and build upon and build upon a principle or a theme or something that happened there in in the scripture that he constantly will build upon it. So when we see this in Hebrews 2 The word spoken through the angels. There are some people who say, well, it just can't be because you don't see the angels there in Exodus. You see a brief reference there in Deuteronomy 3. But through all that, what we're understanding is this. That the angels themselves, that they had a part in bringing forth the law to Moses. So the angels cooperated with God to give the law to Moses. How they cooperated and what way they cooperated, I don't know the details, but I do know this, that they were part of that ministry in getting the law to Moses. Whether they were witnesses, I, you know they were there, they had to be some form of witness. But what we're noticing is this, when it comes to this I just wanted you to have those two terms, progressive revelation and subsequent narrative. Those are the technical terms and where sometimes you'll have something more added in the New Testament that you won't find there in the old. And so this is one of those instances where if the word of God spoken through the angels proves steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how then we how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation so he talks about this the word that was spoken through angels and it was steadfast it was solid it was unmovable so the word that was given through the angels the word that was spoken through the angels to Moses would be the law and that law was solid. That law was a rock. That law was immovable. In other words, you couldn't say, well, the law says this, but I want to change it now. Once the law was written there in stone, it was what? It was written in stone. You can't erase it from stone and write something else. Now, when Moses broke the tablets, he rewrote the exact same words all over again. The words needed to be there. They couldn't be changed. Now what happens is this, if that word that was given, the law was given, was steadfast, and if every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, in other words, what you sow, you reap. If you do something wrong, there's a penalty that comes with it, and that penalty that comes with it is just and then when they say a just reward, that just reward, the term reward means um, you get what you asked for. You get what you deserve. That's the reward. But keep in mind, there are good rewards and there's bad rewards. Now, the the when you have a transgression and a disobedience of the law, then the just reward is what? The right reward is a penalty. So what God would do is this. He'd say, here's my law. Here's my heart. If you do this in error, then this is the penalty that comes upon you. In other words, if you steal something, well, then you have to give it back and you have to give it back fourfold. If you um, commit adultery, you're stoned. If you disobey your parents, you're stoned. There was always rules and regulations for disobeying the law. And so he makes a statement, the author of Hebrews, if the words spoken through the angels prove steadfast, in other words, was solid, unmovable, and every transgression and disobedience received its just reward. So everything you did wrong, there was a just penalty that came through that. So he makes a statement, if that word, the law, was solid, and everything that you did by rejecting that law and doing something different, if you received a just reward, verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him god also bearing witness both of both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts and the holy spirit according to his own will Now we see that here, he says, if that word that was spoken through the angels was solid and every disobedient act that you did against it by rejecting it or neglecting it, if you had a reward of discipline against that, he says, well, then how are you going to escape so great, uh, how are you going to escape any, you know, um, penalties if we neglect so great a salvation. In other words, the word that was spoken through Jesus Christ. He says, you can come to God not through all the law. You can come to God through me. How incredible is that? So when you say, well, I'm going to come through you, but I'm also going to come through the law. No, now what happens? If that first word was incredible that was given through the angels, how much more the second, how much better, how immeasurably better the words of Jesus Christ that says, no longer will you come through the law, but you will come through me. You will come through my work. And that work we're gonna see in verse nine, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So we see that we're gonna put our faith in that him, the captain of our salvation. So he's simply trying to say, listen, we have God, and, and as he sent Jesus Christ, he's so much better than the angels in his deity. And if the word that came through the angels, as amazing as that was, and everything that you neglected of that word would have a penalty, when this word came through Jesus Christ, the word of so great a salvation. This term, so great a salvation, is... One that will blow your mind. The more you study it, the more your brain cannot comprehend it. When it says so great a salvation, you can say, how could you neglect so vast a salvation? How could you neglect so wonderful a salvation? How could you neglect this magnanimous, uh, these things that you can't comprehend. It keeps going beyond and beyond and beyond anything you could ask or think. That's what this salvation is. And the salvation isn't by works. The salvation is simply Jesus died for us. We put our faith in him. And if you reject that, if you neglect that, if you move away and you drift from that, he says, then how are you going to escape? If if every word that the angels gave that you neglect of that law... If you say, well, I'm going to shift it a little bit. Well, then you neglected it, and you had a penalty. I'm just going to, just even a smaller bit, you still neglected it, and there's a penalty. Now, if you have this word of so great a salvation, this salvation that, as we see here, I want you to see the confirmation of this salvation. First of all, you're going to see it's through the Lord Jesus Christ Christ. The second confirmation is through the Father, and the third is through the Holy Spirit. All three persons in the Trinity are putting their stamp on this final word for us coming into a right relationship with God. And that's not through the law. It's not through works. It's only through the person of Jesus Christ. So we see this. He says, how shall we escape, verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now, just as an aside, I want you to see that the author of Hebrews was one who actually was in the person, in person, hearing the words of Jesus Christ. So you can't have someone who wasn't there with Jesus Christ there in his ministry. And so we see that it would have to be one of the apostles. It would have to be someone who was with Jesus, um, someone who was there in Jerusalem or in Galilee, Galilee, who had heard Jesus Christ, or Paul who was there in the desert, Jesus speaking directly to him. That's who the author would have to be. It's someone who heard Jesus Christ in the person, which is why he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So we heard him and it was confirmed in us by those who heard him. So first it was spoken by the Lord. Jesus Christ had made this statement, listen, I got to go to Jerusalem and there the religious leaders are going to reject me and I will be rejected, I will be mocked, I will be crucified. I will die upon that cross and I will be buried, but don't worry, on the third day I will rise again. This is our salvation. It's the simple work of Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less. And so that's the word that he first spoke by the Lord. So, Jesus here is speaking of this salvation. Verse 4 says, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, we see that God the Father is also bearing witness with both signs and wonders. He says, I'm going to show you that I'm here and I'm with this. So how does God show it? Well, there in the baptism, he said what? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When Jesus was transfigured there among the disciples, you know, he would say, hey, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. In more than one ways, God would make his witness saying, I'm going to be here and I'm going to put my mark on this. When Jesus was born, the angels of God came and rejoiced. So we see that when Jesus died, what did God do? He ripped that veil in the temple from top to bottom, said, listen, now the way, the access to my son, to me, is perfect. He's already made that way. So these are the things that God himself, and if you want a good understanding for verse 4, you can say, God the Father also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you see that here God allows the Holy Spirit through these miracles and gifts that Jesus Christ would come on the scene and he would open the eyes of the blind and he would make the deaf see. He would literally cause the dead to come alive. Now talk about miracles. Now here's something that the, the, the Pharisees would say, well, why are you causing someone to open his hand, you know, and, and when it's on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, well, why didn't you open his hand the day before the Sabbath? You had all this time to open the eyes of the blind and allow the lame to walk. You guys have done nothing. And now you're complaining about me because I'm just simply telling the man, hey, hey, you know what? Open, open your hand. And and so we see that here they're all complaining, but everything that Jesus did was bearing witness. And those signs and wonders, the miracles that he had done, the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So God wanted this threefold confirmation of the word of this gospel threefold confirmation the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all bearing witness. So this is the word that declares what? So great a salvation. I'll tell you what, you could probably do about eight messages just on those words alone, so great a salvation, that the more you comprehend the salvation, the greater it becomes, how vast it is, how wonderful it is, how beyond comprehension. We only know this tiny little aspect of everything that God did to redeem the world to himself and anyone who would accept this gift of Jesus Christ and come through him this is what he says just come through me just that nothing more nothing less and if you want to neglect just Jesus and you want to change it up a little bit Well, he makes a statement, if this word through the angels proves steadfast, well, how are we going to escape if we neglect this great salvation that was spoken of by the Lord? What happens when we simply add to the work of Jesus Christ? I know, Jesus, you died for me, but I'm going to do this too. And that's really going to make me righteous. It's going to be a marriage badge on that robe of righteousness that you gave to me. Really? You can put marriage badges on a robe of righteousness? I'll tell you what, that doesn't work. It's a stain. It's a blotch. So we see here, this is what God is trying to say. Therefore, we must give a more earnest heed because Jesus and his deity is so far immeasurably better than the angels. This word that was spoken through Jesus Christ, confirmed by the Father and by the Holy Spirit, we have to give heed to that and lest you neglect so great a salvation and so we see here that he warns us don't neglect this salvation what does that term neglect mean i want to give you just one passage to just jot down found in matthew chapter 22 verse 5 it declares this you you guys understand there was a parable that he gave about a marriage And it it says in verse 4, again, he went out with other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But verse 5 of Matthew 22 says this, but they made light of it and they went their ways. So what we're seeing is this, they have an opportunity, but they ignore it. They neglect it. They, they disregard the opportunity that was given to them. And this is here what Jesus is saying. How can you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? How can you escape if you make light of the work of Jesus Christ and say it's only the work of Jesus Christ that makes me right with God? I can't add to it. I can't subtract to it. And anyone who says, well, listen, what I've done has subtracted from the work of Jesus Christ, then you are also making light of it. He's able to save from the uttermost. We call it the guttermost, but he's able to save us from from our sin. This is the work which he has done. So we see here, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which is spoken by the Lord? Verse 4, God also bearing witness and the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, as he goes on and talks about this gospel, this salvation that Jesus Christ spoke of, his work and his alone, verse 5 says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and with honor and you set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So what is he saying now? Well, as he goes and he first talks about how Christ is so superior to the angels in his deity, now the author of Hebrews begins to show that Christ is also so much better than the angels because of his humanity. Now, how can Christ be better than the angels in his humanity? We know how much better he is because he's God because of his name and because he created them and because, you know, he rules and, you know, he cre- he's the creator of all things. He was anointed more than them and he has a higher place than all the seven things that we talked about earlier. But how is he greater in his humanity? Well, what the author begins to do in verse five is this. He says, he's put the world to come of which we speak. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to the angels. So what we see is this. He makes a statement, you haven't put the world to come in subjection. The angels aren't going to be ruling the world to come. But one testified in a certain place in verse 6 saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? As he goes, he says, wow, I don't understand what man is. Why you are so mindful of him? He quotes there of Psalm 8. He says, or the son of man that you take care of him but you've made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. So although you made man lower than the angels, in other words, angels are, you know, they see God, they're able to go from God to earth and they have this access. Angels can wipe out men by just speaking. God uses the angels to be ministering spirits. We already saw that. And so God uses the angels to minister to men, to protect men, sometimes to, you know, wipe out other men. But it does declare this at the end of verse 7, and set him over the works of your hands. What does it mean that God set man over the works of his hands? Well, that, as you know, is found there in Genesis chapter 1. As you go, start reading in verse 26, and I'm going to start reading from verse 26 to 30. Just listen to it as you will. But it says in Genesis 1:26, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. This is let them now have authority, have the ability to rule over it, over all the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see over the water, the land, the bugs, and over all the earth, man has authority. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He tells man to subdue the earth. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also, every beast of the earth, every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. God gave man dominion over all the earth. So basically what we're seeing here is what Hebrews 2.7 says, and he set him over the works of your hands. God gave the earth and everything to it to Adam. Now what happens is this, when Adam sinned and He now basically gave the title deed and everything over to Satan. Why? Because he listened to Satan and not to God. And as he does, now Satan becomes the prince of this world. He becomes the prince of the power of the air. He becomes the ruler, so much so that there in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, one of the things that Satan does is he puts Jesus on the high pinnacle of the temple. He says, Listen, He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, all these kingdoms I will give to you if you simply just bow down and worship me. Now, was he lying? Now, Jesus said, you're such a liar. No, no, it was a true thing. But what Satan was trying to say is this. You want the world and everything in it? I will give you the world and everything in it if you bow down and worship me. You can take a shortcut in getting the world. You don't have to die You don't have to die for the sins of men. I will give you everything that you want. You don't have to purchase it with your death. There's a shortcut, an easy way. The same thing that Satan always does to us. Take a shortcut. Take the easy way. You don't have to go the hard way. Don't take the way of suffering. There's an easier path. But here... When God had put all things under subjection under the feet of man, man, because of his sin surrendered all to Satan. Now, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to purchase it all again. So understand that here, although man was made lower than the angels, God did something amazing. He gave man dominion over the earth. Now, in the book of Revelation, and in the new heavens and the new earth, who is God going to give authority to? It's to man again. Man is going to be again having the, the, um, the ability to, you know, take care of this world. Now, in verse 8, when he makes this statement, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, he didn't say you put some things. He didn't say you put most things. Everything he gave to man, and man lost it all. Now, he says in verse 8, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see, we do not yet see all things put under him. So although we see that all things were given to the first Adam, and of course, through his failures, he surrenders all those things to, um, to Satan, so now we're not seeing all things you know, put underneath him. We don't see all things being right. As we look in this world, we see sin. Turn on the news. You're going to see sin. There's not a lot of good news that goes on. You're going to see sin. However, we are blessed because as we share so great a salvation, there are those who receive and we're able to worship with them saying, you've received this gift and you're no longer a citizen of this world. You're now a citizen of heaven come and enter in. So although that we don't see everything put together right here in the world, Verse nine declares this, but we see Jesus. See, we don't see everything right in this world, but we see Jesus upon the throne. We know he's sitting upon that throne. We know he's making intercession upon the throne. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him For whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. In order to redeem, in order to do that, Old Testament teaches that you have to be a kinsman. You have to be related in some way. Well, keep in mind, the angels are in no way related to man. They're, they're so much better than us, yet we're, we're made lower than them, and we understand that, but yet he's given us, although we're lower than them in physical statues and ability and, 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 and holiness and all those things, He still gave us dominion over the earth. Now, although he gave dominion to man, man surrendered over to Satan. So we don't see it underneath, but we see Jesus. Now, Jesus himself, which is so amazing, which puts him in a better place than the angels. Jesus, not only is he in his deity better than the angels, but in his humanity, he now becomes a brethren. He now becomes a kinsman redeemer. And as a man, he humbles himself and becomes a servant. And Philippians tells us that as a servant, he humbles himself to the point of death. And that's here what we see in verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, that as he came to that place of becoming a man, becoming that second Adam. Remember, we were reading there in that passage um, last Sunday as far as Romans chapter 5. I want to read just four verses to you. I want to read verses 12, 14, 18, and 19. Let me just read it to you. Romans 5, 12, 14, 18, and 19. Therefore, verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 14 Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, and even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Verse 18 and 19 Therefore, as through One As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous." This is that work of Jesus Christ. As we see him, as we see this work, we're understanding that Jesus here, yeah, he was made Lord of the angels. In other words, he comes in humanity. Now, something that we need to understand about Jesus's deity and humanity is this. There are some people who say, well, Jesus was fully God and he just sort of faked it as a man. There are others who say, well, Jesus was really just a man and, you know, and everything that he did was just, you know, God kept blessing him, but he was only a man. He was never God. Both of them are in error. There's another, a third that says this, that Jesus was like 50% God and 50% man. And that's not true either. Understand that what the scripture says is this, Jesus is 100% God And Jesus is 100% man. He is the God-man. He is God eternal, but he also came. Unto us a child is born, comes to earth as a man incarnation, unto us a son is given, the eternal God coming here onto earth. So, Keep this in mind that Jesus was made a little lower. So he comes in his incarnation. And because he comes as a man, he's now a kinsman, redeemer, to men. He now through the suffering of death. Look at verse 9 again. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus suffers death, that he, Jesus Christ, might taste death for everyone. In other words, he's now separated from God. He gets that death that was talked about to Adam. Remember what God said, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Well, he ate of the fruit, and then what happened? Well, then he didn't die. You know, he was there in the garden and God was walking around and God said, hey, Adam, where are you? He said, well, I, I heard you. I had to cover myself. And, and you know, he didn't die. He had more children. It wasn't the day that he ate of it. He was going to die by man's definition of death that's the heart stops beating the brain waves start you know stop working and you reach room temperature that's not the death the death that God talks about this you will be separated from me and you'll no longer have intimacy that's what God says is death and I think what's what's interesting is this we have a definition of life is breathing and death is not God says life is me and death is not I trust God's definition a lot more than mine because Jesus says this, listen, if you believe in me, you shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the heart because you will never have to be separated from God. Yeah, you might stop breathing on this side, but then you enter into glory on the other side, you're still Um, alive. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. That's why it says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. But I thought they stopped breathing, but they're still alive. He is the God of the living. And so we see here that Jesus He comes and he tastes death for everyone. He allows himself to be separated from God so that you and I would never have to taste that separation from God. We would never have to be judged by our sin because our sin has already been judged. This is what he did, but he couldn't do it as an angel. An angel couldn't do this. God himself couldn't do this, but when God himself becomes a man, and people wonder, so, well, just how how much of a man was he? Well, understand, he was 100% man. We're going to see in just a moment how even as a man, he was even tempted. He was tempted as a man, and he understands temptations because he came as a man. 100% God, 100% man, and because he comes as a man, because he's a kinsman redeemer, he can now, as a man, as the last Adam, through his righteous work, he can take everyone who the first Adam made unrighteous and gave the sin nature, he can now take and pay the penalty of that unrighteousness and thus give them the robe of righteousness, making them right with God. That's what he does, but you can only do it, what? As a man. It can't be a God who does it. It can't be an angel who does it, you have to be a man. So God himself becomes this man experiencing everything that we do. And then he went to the cross and he paid that penalty as a man. Talk about so much better. Jesus is better, so immeasurably better. And the angels He's better because of his deity, but he's also better because of his humanity. What he did as a man blows the work of angels. Because what? All the angels did was what? Well, sometimes they kill men, sometimes they help men, and they're limited. Jesus died for all men. That's incredible when you think of this. Now, now the angels will come along and they'll help give the law, but Jesus will come with the Father and the Spirit talking about this great salvation. Something that is so vast, so immeasurable, so great. And we see here now, back in verse 9, we see Jesus. We don't see the world being the way it is, but we see Jesus doing what? Reconciling us to make us right. The world isn't right, but as we surrender to the work of Jesus Christ, we're made right. How incredible is that? So we see that, yeah, we don't see the world yet, But we see Jesus, verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels, comes comes in his incarnation for the suffering of death. So he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was made to die. He came to this earth to die. That was the whole reason that he came. It was the prophecies about him as he came. So he was come to death, crowned with glory and honor. So he come to die, but he is crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God. Understand, there's no other action of God than grace. Not the righteousness, not the love, it's the grace giving us what we don't deserve. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. That God's grace said, I'm going to allow Jesus to take the penalty that is yours. I'm going to allow him to take the suffering that is yours. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him. Now it talks about how great it is that he's a man. It was fitting for him. It was right for him, for whom are all things. Because now as God, he was the creator of all things. He redeemed all things. So it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. So not only did he create them, but then he redeemed them. Now, I'll tell you what, that makes it doubly yours. If you created it and then say, well, I lost it, but I found it in a pawn shop and I bought it back. Well, now you're really, really mine because not only did I make you, but I bought you back. Now you're truly mine. And so he says, "For by whom all things are all things. So again, verse 10, it was fitting for him whom are all. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he doesn't make all sons sons of glory, but many sons come to glory. Those who receive the work of Jesus Christ and stand on that, and only that. And so he now becomes the captain of their salvation, perfect through suffering. He does the work, and this is how he's promoted. He's promoted to El Capitan. He's the captain. He's the, the head honcho. He's the one who is the, the, the chief now of our salvation because of his suffering. Because he went through the cross, he was now elevated to the highest position of glory and honor. So as we see this, he says in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies which would be Jesus Christ and those who are being sanctified which are now us are all one for with reason for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren so he says listen you think you're separated but once you accept my finished work on the cross You now become family. You're now in me. I'm in you. We're a one thing here. And this is where it's so beautiful. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So as he does, he now says in verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. So we see that he talks about this uniting of himself with those who were once sinners. And so when he does this, I want you to see how amazing of a passage that the author of Hebrews uses here in verse 12. The passage that he uses to say, I'm going to declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Believe it or not, that's found in Psalm 22, verse 22. Why is that so important? Well, when you take a look at Psalm 22... If you ever heard that portion where Jesus was there on the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is that so important? Well, it just so happens to be the starting words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me in the days of my groaning, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. In the night season, I'm not silent. But you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. This is Psalm 22. This is the psalm he said on the cross. And there in verse 22, he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I'm going to praise you. So who are the brethren And that's a really good question. When you look at this psalm, who are the brethren? Well, it begins in verse six. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of man, and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip, but they shake their head, saying, he trusted the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. How incredible is that in verse six? 12 and 13, he makes a statement, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. In verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Do you realize that every one of those passages he's declaring, brethren, How incredible is that? If these are his brethren, the ones that are crucifying him, the ones that he says what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How incredible is that? So you think, wow, he is so much better than the angels because of his humanity, even in his death. Those who have sinned against God, he calls them in verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. When you come to receive him, you're all one. I love verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, we're all one. And for that reason, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. We are the family of God. And so he says, Verse 12, I will declare your name among my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Verse 13, he quotes from Psalm or from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, says, I will put my trust in him. I'm going to trust in your plan, God. Now, how incredible is that? After he quotes from Psalm 22, where it's a psalm of the cross, he makes this statement in verse 13 I will put my trust in him. I'm going to trust your plan. I'm going to trust that Psalm 22 has to take place. I'm going to trust that I'm going to have to be upon the cross. And I'm going to point to this psalm, this particular psalm, I as a man to my brethren saying, I'm going to declare your name to my brethren. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm declaring that you're my God. I'm declaring who you are. I'm going to declare... My praises to you. It is finished. The work is done. How incredible this! So I'm going to put my trust in him, he says there in verse 13. And the end of verse 13 again, here I am in the, here am I and the children whom God has given me. That he's going to bring us with him to God through this finished work. This is so incredible that Jesus in his humanity comes to lower himself to the point of being a servant and the servant of death. And as a man, a sinless man, he now dies for us that we can now be made right with God. So in verse 14 here of Hebrews chapter two, he says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So now he's trying to explain even more. Jesus was not just an apparition to pretend to be a man, where he was like this vision of a man. No, he was actually a man. Read verse 14 again. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, We are completely human, fully human, flesh and blood. He himself likewise shared in the same. Jesus was, yes, fully God, but he was also fully man. That through death, through death as a man now, which makes him so much better than the angels, not only his deity, but in his humanity, because through death as a man, he might destroy him who had the power over death. That is the devil. Now, how does the devil have power over death? Well, think about this. He has the power to demand death. He has the power to ask for death. Keep in mind, he still needs permission, but he does have the power of demanding death. Revelation chapter 12. He's the accuser of the brethren, right? The other passage that you might want to be aware of, just so that you can kind of have a better idea of what it means that he is the one who demands death, there's a passage in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. And there in Zechariah chapter 3, I want to read the first five verses. You guys will know this once I start reading it. But it deals with Joshua the high priest and declares this. Then, Zechariah 3.1, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So we see that Satan here is trying to accuse Zechariah before the Lord. Now talk about the pot calling the kettle black. You know, you have him who's The angel that sinned is now, look at Zechariah, look at what he's done, look at his sin. Well, verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a a brand plucked from the fire? So Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and he spoke to those who stood by him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on my head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. So what Satan does is he looks at the clothes of Joshua and says, look at his righteousness. His righteousness is filthy rags and he's not worthy to stand before you And so here we see that he's the one who is the declarer of death. He should die. He's filthy. Look at his indignation. And God says, listen, I've made him right. I've made him right. There's nothing you can do now. I've done the work. And this is here what Jesus does. As he now, in the flesh, sheds his blood and allows his flesh to die that through death, it says in verse 14, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. It simply says that you know, the hand running of the requirements that was against us, he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. And in that, he makes a public spectacle of all of the spiritual um, entities that want to condemn us, that want to be on Satan's side. And so we see here, He destroys him who has the power over death, that is devil, verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We were in bondage to our sin. We were in bondage to, you know, this whole area because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And so he makes this statement, And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We were dead and we were dead in our sins and we knew that we were doomed and there was nothing that we could do. And so man is trying to through all the um, generations saying, how can I get back to God? How can I get back to God? And isn't that what religions are? Every religion has this one thing in common. It's man doing good works to work yourself up to a right relationship to God. It's man, what can I do to take another step and another step and another step? And Oh, I fell to. What can I do to take another step and another step and another step? We're always trying to increment, get ourselves up to where God says, now I accept you. That's all man's religion. Now, what God does is this. He said, there's a steep cliff and there's no handholds. You know, even even some of these rock climbers can't get up. There's nothing you can do. It is so high. It's so deep. It's so wide. There's nothing that you can do. But what we can do is this. God comes down to man. He holds man and then he picks man up to heaven. It's God who comes down, not man who works his way up. God comes down. That's Christianity. So this we see here in verse 15. He releases those who through fear of death and all their lifetime were subject to bondage. For he indeed does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So God doesn't redeem the angels. And this is something that you need to ponder. When the angels sinned, Satan sinned, and he took one third of the angels with him you understand that there is no redemption for the angels? And if you think, why is there no redemption for the angels? Because God's a just God. And then you say, well, why is there redemption for man? Because God is merciful and he's chosen to put his mercy upon us. Why? Unbelievable. Here it says that he shouldn't. There's, there's no redemption for the angels. And so it makes this statement, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. He does give aid to man, those who will become children through Abraham. And in the same way as that Abraham believed and it was accounted for him for righteousness, we who believe, we become children of Abraham We become the seed of Abraham. And so we see here that here Jesus doesn't give aid to the angels. There's no redemption for them. He doesn't become an angel and redeem the angels. He simply becomes a man and he redeems man. Verse 17, therefore, in all these things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. So as we see this now, it says he had to be made like his brother in verse 17. That he, like a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So, in other words, in order to be a high priest, only a man can be a high priest. Why? Because the priest is going to be that which does what? Is going to draw the people to God. That's what they will do. And so when we see this, that, that high priest will say, you know, I'm going to take your hand. I'm going to put it to God's hand. I'm going to try to, you know, bring you closer to God. This is the work of the priest. So the priest is someone unique because the priest can like hold God's hand and holds our hand. And he puts our hands together. He has that connection to both. And what we see this is that he would be this merciful and faithful high priest. Now we're going to see as we go a little further into this, that he's not going to be a high priest according to the tribe of Levi. He's going to be a high priest according to a whole different um, priesthood. And that's the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a a high priest, but he was a priest before the children of Israel even got to Egypt and wound up in the wilderness and had their first high priest, Aaron, even before Aaron was a high priest. All the way back to the time of Abraham, there was another high priest. His name was Melchizedek. He didn't have a father. He didn't have a mother there in Scripture. He had no beginning. He had no end. In all these ways, he would made like the Son of God. So he is a faithful high priest. Here in this chapter, the author of Hebrews doesn't go into the Melchizedekian priesthood. We'll get into it in a couple chapters. What we do need to see is this. He becomes the high priest. He becomes the highest one in all things to draw people to God. So he becomes the faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. In other words, drawing us to him, making propitiations for the sins of the people. Big word, people are confused over it. But propitiation, the simplest term is satisfaction. We would call it atonement. He makes atonement, makes propitiation, makes satisfaction for the sins of the people. In other words, where my sin was there, Jesus paid the price, and now God is satisfied that the price is paid. That's that's what it is. Our sin has been paid for. God looks at the sin and says, yep, paid for in full. It's not to your account anymore. This is what Jesus does as a high priest. He makes the propitiation for the sins of the people. He's the one who made the sacrifice. Now, as a high priest, keep in mind he doesn't take a lamb or a goat, something that's temporary. As a high priest, he takes himself, his sinless self, and he offers that. But he offers it. Keep in mind that God doesn't say, you lose, I'm gonna offer you. He, as a high priest, the high priest does the offering. That's what Jesus does to the high priest is I'm going to offer a sinless sacrifice. Oh yeah, by the way, that sacrifice is me. I'm offering myself for the sins of the people. So we see here that he now as this high priest, he offers himself to make our sins now satisfied or atoned for. And in verse 18, for that For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are being tempted. So just in case you're thinking, wow, you know what? You are so good and so beyond us. You you don't understand. You don't understand what I'm going through. You don't understand the temptations that I'm going through. You don't understand how hard these temptations are and how hard it is to walk away. And Jesus would say, oh, yes, I do. I understand these temptations. I was tempted, and it says here, he himself being tempted that he's able to aid those who are being tempted. A passage you may want to be aware of is Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. When he went through the wilderness and there in the 40 days, those temptations were very real temptations. When he was hungry and the enemy said, hey, since you are the son of God, just command these stones to become bread. It's okay. It's okay if you just take some nourishment he had to let him know it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he would go on and he would tempt him and tempt him, even so to the point, take a shortcut. You don't have to go through the suffering. I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you simply bow down and worship me. But he would say, listen, only God, you only worship God get away from me Satan only the Lord and only him will I serve and so but all these temptations were very real they they, they weren't you know nothing they were a true temptation but what did he do he relied on the word of God as strength as power to overcome every temptation and so when we say, you can't understand what I'm going through, is I, I understand all these temptations. I understand the temptation of the flesh. I understand the temptation to take a shortcut. I understand, understand the temptation of the spirit. I understand all those things. I understand the temptation of the world, the flesh, and the spirit. And, and I understand how the enemy wants to say, yeah, here's the devil. Take a shortcut. Don't have to go through those things. I understand it all and so I'm able to aid you. Why is he able to aid? Because what he did was this. He stood on the word of God. He says, this is what I'm going to establish as the power in my life, not the temptation. I'm not gonna give into it. I'm gonna look to the word. It's gonna become power in my life to walk in a way that glorifies God. So we see here that he does all of this in what? In his humanity. And I'll tell you what. The angels can't hold a candle to this. The angels could not come and say, "I'll die, I'll die for the sins." You you can't because you're not the brethren. You're 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 greater than they. You know, man was made less than you. What is man that you are even mindful of him? And the angels could never decrease themselves in that way. But God Himself could become incarnate. God Himself would become a man. Be 100% God and 100% man. So, when we're taking a look at this area of seeing how Jesus is so immeasurably better, he's so immeasurably better than all the prophets, he's immeasurably better than all the angels, both in his deity and his inhumanity and in his humanity. And so, we see that here he's just so much better. And next week, we then compare him to Moses. Now, if you think your mind is blowing now, Wait till we go to Moses and we see how great Moses is and how Jesus is so much better. Amen? Well, Father, we do thank you for this word. And again, this balance of just how amazing you are, Jesus. You are fully God and in that you just exceed the angels. As amazing as they are. As wonderful as they are, they cannot hold a candle to you and what you did as God. But how amazing is that? That amazing as angels are and as wonderful as they are, they can't hold a candle to what you accomplished as a man. You are truly so much better. We are in awe of how everything you did just shows how you excel how great you are, every word you spoke, every deed you did, everything you did, you did for us that we could be reconciled to God. Thank you for this incredible salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you did on the cross. And Father, forgive us when we neglect that, when we try to lessen that, when we either add to the work that you've done on the cross, that we think that through walking something in the law that we can add to the righteousness through, through neglecting, Lord, just only what you've done. And as the word of the law had penalty, what you've declared of your gospel, if we think light of it, If we don't appropriate only that, but we add to it or subtract from it, Lord, how can we escape? There were penalties for a lesser thing, the minor thing of the law. How much so if we just reject and and think less of what you've done? Everything that you did, Jesus, from the foundation of the world would point you to the cross. That was your focal point, that was it. And so we do see, Lord, that that's what we stand on as well. That we stand on your finished work and only that. And that's what draws us near. That's what brings us forgiveness. That what is unites us to you. That even though we were like those in Psalm 22 to, to ridicule you and to blaspheme and to walk in sin, that you would come and you would praise God and you would seek to be one with us those who are sinners. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. Thank you for your work. We just praise you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints of God said, amen.